Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Dr. Lydia Matisse-Brandt. Lydia is an architectural historian, historic preservationist, and associate professor of art history at the University of South Carolina here in Columbia. She is the author of First in the Homes of His Countrymen, George Washington's Mount Vernon in the American Imagination, and many articles published in Winterthur Portfolio, Antiques and Fine Art, and The Public Historian. And her recent publication is titled The South Carolina Statehouse Grounds, a Guidebook, and that's published by the University of South Carolina Press. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Curtis. I'm excited to be here. Great. It's great to talk to you and to meet you virtually. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, your new guidebook. I'm an architectural historian, so I focus on buildings and the landscapes around buildings and understanding not just how they ended up as they are, how people designed them or made decisions about what they should look like, but also how they shape us, how they make us who we are as individuals, as Uh, as a society. And I focus on American architecture. And I've taught at USC for 10 years. And I've always used the Statehouse grounds for different things. I've used it to walk on. uh, I've used it to teach my students about classical architecture. I've used it to teach my students about the Athenian Acropolis, the way in which buildings and monuments will line up physically with one another in order to convey uh, different ideas about power uh, or even religion. So it, it's a site that I have gotten to know in little bits over the past 10 years. And as someone who is deeply interested in how places shape who we are, um, it's always really intrigued me. And and all state house grounds have always really intrigued me. I always like to go see Capitol buildings and and even courthouses and other types of public buildings where people tend to not just convey their identity, but confirm it in a really aggressive way and in a really obvious way. And sometimes in opposition to others, right? Conveying who I am, also using a building to say, this is who I am, can also tell someone else who they're not. So um, I've always been really interested in that. And this site in particular kind of came about over the last 10 years. My interest in the site in particular came out over the last 10 years, in part because people would ask me questions that I just couldn't answer. And so I started digging into the research. And the more and more I found, as always happens, once you're in the archive uh, or you're on the, the newspaper.com website or whatever, Um, I started seeing all these fascinating stories and a guidebook seemed to me the most efficient way to organize those stories that aren't always connected. Whereas if I had just tried to write a monograph, a book that told the history of the site from beginning to end, I wouldn't have been able to include all of those details that I thought were really interesting. And, you know, as you're talking, it seems to me that, you know, Statehouse grounds, they're going to have multiple guidebooks. And so I would imagine 
you know, part of your research would have included looking at previous guidebooks. And were there a lot published prior and were you able to access them? There were a handful published over the course of the 20th century. There's only really one that I would properly call a guidebook. So there was one published around 1970. There's another one published in the 50s. But I haven't found those guidebooks to be particularly helpful in terms of my research, other than as documents of what people, especially the state, wanted the public to know about this site in 1970 or in 1950. They don't have footnotes. They don't have any kind of bibliography. And they're not usually based in primary sources. So they themselves are helpful as primary sources. But I did not find them to be particularly informative otherwise. And that's part of why I I chose to write a guidebook, too. It's also always interesting to me what people leave out of guidebooks. And so I was very careful to include every marker. And there were definitely a couple markers that I found really late in the process. When the photographer that I worked with, Chandler Yonkers, was out taking pictures of the monuments, he found a marker I had never seen. And I texted him back and he was so excited to tell me about it. I texted him back. I was like, do not find any more. I cannot, I cannot possibly research anymore for this book. So, so that was, that was important to me to be really inclusive because the previous sources had not been. And, you know, that's something else as you're talking that I'm reminded of is with in the last five years or so, we've seen an awful lot of state and national coverage of monuments and statues being removed from state house grounds or uh, institutions of higher education. So, you know, it's, I think it's very important to document these as part of history, but I'm wondering how that might factor into, um, you know, future research on, on state house grounds, specifically the South Carolina state house. And, you know, there may be some things that might get removed. Well, and that's another reason why I chose to do the guidebook and the timing of this. I mean, this project has happened in the last two years. And I see this book as a snapshot of what this site looked like in 2021. Also, the book is careful to lay out the history of people's response to this site. So it documents, for example, the Heritage Act and the moratorium laws of the early 2000s that were wrapped up in the transfer of the Confederate flag from the top of the dome to the Confederate monument that are really the root of a lot of the discussion in South Carolina specifically right now. So this book lays out all the monuments on the timeline of that legislation as well so that it can serve as a document. And it is interesting when you talk about, you know, a guidebook being done in the 50s and then in the 70s. And now here we are in, you know, 2021 to see the progression of Um, equity and inclusion, like with the African-American monument uh, right there near another controversial monument. Um, So it's it's fascinating to look at that uh, in the grand scheme of things. So uh, you already talked to us a little bit about how how the book came about, but what was the immediate thing that, you know, made you said, you know what, I need to do a guidebook? People will ask, would ask me questions uh, that seemed really basic. When was this monument built? Who paid for this monument? What is this monument made of? And it was embarrassing that I could not answer them, especially when it's a student and you you don't want to lie, but you also don't want to 
uh, damage your own credibility. Uh, so that kind of forced me to go do some research on some of these particular monuments. Um, but what was interesting to me too, and what really convinced me to do the guidebook was people's questions about how the monuments were connected. And once I started doing the research and realizing that there were a lot of ways in which they were connected that I had not anticipated, I realized I had to do a guidebook that laid out not just the correct information on the history of each of these monuments, but that also attempted to make some connections between them and a connective narrative or kind of tissue that lays out the overall history of this site over 200, more than 200 years. It's an extremely complicated site as any state house grounds are. And the other thing is, as I looked at more state houses and Anytime we are within a hundred miles of a capital, we stop and look at the state house. My husband is very enthusiastic about them too. He's a very good sport. Um, I realized South Carolina has a lot more monuments than a lot of other state house grounds. It's older uh, and it's for a state this small, it, it has a ton of monuments. And so that was another reason to do a guidebook in particular, because I do think South Carolina stands out. And so once I started going to more State house grounds and understanding a little bit more about individual monuments is all right. This is how we're going to do it. So, tell us a little bit about your writing style for this kind of publication. Did you, I know you, of course, you had to do a lot of research and get a lot of um, documentation, but did you actually talk to any people who work at the state house or, or how, did, how did your flow work for this? The approach, it's a different kind of. I don't know that it's a fundamentally different kind of writing than I usually do as an academic, but I try to keep my vocabulary very accessible. I try to keep my sentence structures a little bit simpler so that it, not so that the ideas felt simpler, but so that it, you could read it faster. Because I do imagine that some people are going to use this book on the state house grounds. I hope they do. Uh, and so I hope they're you know looking at this book and reading it as there's noise around them, as there's traffic around them, um, as there's, you know, their kids or whatever else is going on. And so I wanted this book to be something that you could pick up and put down really quickly and find what you needed and answer your questions really efficiently. As far as how I kind of honed that tone and that approach, I've given a lot of public tours of the state house grounds. And it was a great way for me over the past real, really five years of researching the site on and off. And then I've really been writing the past two years. It was a really great way for me to figure out where the holes of my own research were, how to boil down some incredibly complicated political ideas that I, as not a political historian, I had to really read and think about um, in order to communicate very quickly and effectively. Also, how to be convincing. It's easier for me to be convincing in person than it is on paper. I'm a professor. I talk to students all the time. I'm always having to convince them of something, if you know nothing else, just doing their homework. Uh, so, so having to tell the story of the site again and again in different ways to completely different audiences really helped me figure out how to make this not only an accessible history, but a compelling one. That's true. You do have to have a certain writing style for this kind of publication, because while it is academic in one stance, it's also got to be accessible to a broad range of people who, you know, are just interested in the topic from a standpoint of history. So 
one thing I would love to do is ask you if you would like to maybe read a brief excerpt and um, maybe talk about part of what you learned uh, going through this process. One of the monuments that people ask me a lot about and is always the monument that newspapers ask me about when I get interviewed for different things is the Tillman Monument. I'm going to read the first paragraph that's in the entry about Benjamin Ryan Tillman. It says, Benjamin Ryan Tillman Monument, unveiled 1940 by Frederick C. Hibbard, sculptor. The monument to former South Carolina governor and U.S. Senator Benjamin Ryan Tillman still stands in its original location, which was opposite the statue of his political adversary and predecessor, Wade Hampton, until it was moved in 1969. Politician Jimmy Burns, whose monument sits in the northeast corner of the grounds, gave the speech at the statue's unveiling, describing the grounds as a battlefield and Tillman as the leader who walked through the valley with the masses and who understood their needs and who would fight unwaveringly for their cause. End quote. Erected in the same years that civil rights gained traction in South Carolina, Tillman's steely, one-eyed gaze fixed directly on Hampton and suggested that the most violent and aggressive form of Jim Crow would prevail. You know, you hear things like that, and I remember someone having a conversation, and you know, it was one of those conversations where I just had to interject myself because they were talking about the Confederate flag always being on the top of the state house. And I was like, no, I think it was kind of added in the 60s as a response to the civil rights movement. So, you know, having that documentation is so important. Absolutely. And the flag did go on top of the building in 1962. Um, and it didn't even show up inside the building until the 30s, which is kind of wild. Uh, that there's no Confederate flag in the 19th century ever in this building that is documented. But the, the Tillman Monument is a great example of a monument that really only tells half its story now. It was originally, as I described, across from the Wade Hampton Monument. And the Wade Hampton Monument was moved to its current location, which is in front of the Wade Hampton office building in 1969. Most of the monuments on the state house grounds have moved. And a lot of them moved in the late 60s when the buildings at the south end of the state house grounds were all constructed and the grounds themselves were regularized and the front half was really connected to that new half that's at the back south of Senate Street. So originally Tillman and Hampton faced each other as two examples of how white South Carolina politicians after Reconstruction, looked how they could deal with race in particular uh, and how they, would, uh, how they would lead the state in general. And once that Hampton Monument was moved, they each become separate entities. And so that's one of the, the things that I discovered in my research, that there are these layers to this place that you just can't see anymore. And I find that really fascinating. So this book aims to document them. And I try to use quotes whenever possible, especially from the unveiling, because these statues tell you what they mean. They tell you, they tell you what they're supposed to mean and what people intended them to mean. You just have to listen. And those unveiling speeches are incredibly succinct and helpful at figuring out what the intentions are behind these monuments. It is. And for something like this, there are a lot of primary resources that are really important. And 
I know we have in our collection a number of those kinds of documents that are digitized and, you know, people can access and use those as primary resources. So it's always great when a compilation like this guidebook would have a lot of that included. So thank you for your work on that. And um, also I'll remind listeners that you can find the South Carolina State House Grounds, a guidebook available at the University of South Carolina Press, and that's uscpress.com website. And we'll also have a link to the book and other information in our podcast page. So one of the things that I always like to ask authors and uh, folks I have on the show is, since this is Library Voices SC, and we are coming to you from the South Carolina State Library, is do you have any kind of library-related story that you could share? And this could be something from childhood, or it could be something about your process of working on the book. I have always been a big reader, and I've spent. I don't. <laughs> I don't think you. I don't think you get a PhD in architectural history without being a big reader and without loving libraries because you're going to spend a lot of time in libraries. But I think my my best memories are really about relationships with librarians and having people really go to bat for me and go beyond what they are paid to do that day or that week or that month in order to really make a huge difference in my research. And I have so many memories and stories about ways in which individuals in libraries really changed my perspective on my topic and helped me find things and interpret things that completely shifted the direction of whatever I was doing in really exciting ways. The specific story I have for this book, I worked a lot with Margaret Dunlap at the Richland County Public Library. She is amazing. And she has been working for what feels like forever. I'm sure for her, it really feels like forever to digitize all the different fabulous collections that the Richland County Public Library's Walker Local History Room has. And Without these images, there is no way I could have written this book, like period. Figuring out what this site looked like over time was really, really difficult. One of the things I'm really proud of in the book are a series of maps that reconstruct the paths, for example. And because the paths were all reconfigured in the 60s, the only way to figure out what they looked like in the early 20th century was to use aerial photographs. And because Margaret had digitized so many and done such amazing metadata, I was able to find those images really, really, I didn't spend any time finding them. I could spend all my time analyzing them. But the story is there's a cannon base, a cannon base that sits on the state house grounds and it hasn't had a cannon on it since the 1940s. The cannon was a Spanish American war. Uh, it was Spanish American war loot, huge cannon. I think it was 13 feet long. And I had one picture of it. I'd only ever seen one picture of it, I think because it was in a really leafy place. Uh, and so even though it's this really big thing that lots of people remember and lots of people talk about, I hadn't seen a picture of it. And I kept telling Margaret, keep an eye out for the cannon, keep an eye out for the cannon. And we, we zoomed in on aerials trying to find the cannon. We just couldn't, we just couldn't find the cannon. Right before I had to turn in the last, last, last bits of the manuscript, like the press was telling me, you can't do anymore. You can't make any more changes. This is ours now. Like the day before, Margaret was scanning a Columbia High School yearbook from 1926. She found a picture in the superlative section of the 1920s Columbia High School yearbook where the 
prettiest girl and the prettiest boy were standing next to the cannon. I was so excited. She emailed me. It was like just lines of exclamation points. Like this is the cannon, right? Yes, yes, this is the cannon. So it was a wonderful moment. And just, just at the finish line, the picture made it into the book. And I'm so glad. And it's also just a fabulous picture because for some reason they're dressed in 18th century clothing. No, no explanation for that, but whatever, I'll take it. It's really, really cute. Um, so that was a really a example of how my relationship with her and her hard work and dedication to local history really made a huge difference in this book. That's a very cool story. And, and I can say as a librarian, having worked in libraries for a number of years, you know, when someone does come in and they say they're working on writing a book, a librarian's ears tend to perk up because that's what we're in the business of is maintaining and indexing and cataloging. And so, you know, someone who is working on a book, we always uh, want to go that extra mile. So I'm glad you had that experience. And one other thing I wanted to mention that uh, we will have a link to on our podcast page is that you also also do a podcast, a historically complex podcast, and that's with Historic Columbia. Can you talk about that for a second? Just tell folks what that's all about. The Historically Complex a Tour of the South Carolina State House Grounds podcast came about in part because I'm always trying to figure out how to get this research out to a bigger audience. And it really, I guess, in some ways was a product of the pandemic trying to figure out how to not necessarily replicate, but approximate, kind of get in the ballpark of the experience of my in-person tours, which usually I have done or often I have done in conjunction with Historic Columbia. So this was the podcast was a way for me to share some of that research that is in the book, but in a really different format. It was also really a challenge for me to see how I could do it and how doing a podcast would be different than giving a lecture or giving a tour, certainly than writing. It was an intellectual challenge for me personally. Uh, it was also a challenge because my husband produced it and, <laughs> and composed all the music. So it was a challenge for us to work together and to figure out how to turn our bathroom and our downstairs, our, our downstairs basement bathroom into a recording studio. Everything is covered in carpet, even the toilet. Um, <laughs> So it was it was a really fun personal project. And now I'm really enjoying getting feedback, hearing what people would want from later episodes or or another season or what people would want from future tours that I might give. It's very cool. And it's a great way to um, create more primary research because you're actually when you're producing a podcast, that conversation becomes a primary resource. So I think that's really cool. So as we wrap up, uh, are you available to do book talks? I'm sure libraries out there and library friends groups who are always looking for authors and writers to, um, to talk about their books, if you're available to do that and any other kind of projects you have coming up. I am available to do book talks. I love talking about this site. It's so accessible to people. Everyone has some kind of memory. Um, if not with this particular site, then a site like it. So it's it's really interesting to me to speak with different groups and hear about different people's experiences. It's also a really hot topic. So it's fun to walk into a room and know that there are people on both sides 
of the argument. So I enjoy trying to bring people together over the history of the site and uh, and some of the really, I think, surprising things that I've discovered in the course of my research. The only other thing I'd like to mention is the online tour that Historic Columbia has on their website. So if you go to historiccolumbia.org slash monuments, you'll find some resources, including a link to the podcast. Uh, but we created an online tour that has little entries. They're short. They're not, I'm not giving away the book. I had to reassure the press that. Um, <laughs> little entries on the various monuments, but more importantly, it has wonderful photographs and postcards, many of which are from the Richland County Public Library's collection. Others are from um, Historic Columbia's collection or photographs that were taken by uh, Chandler Yonkers. So it's a great way to reference the site really quickly. And whether you're reading the guidebook or you're listening to the podcast, I think it's a fun thing to click around because of all the historic images that we've organized there. So that's another resource for people. There's also a bibliography, which is helpful. <laughs> Very helpful. Of course, librarians love to hear about bibliographies. So, so thank you for that. And also to our listeners, just a reminder, we will have links to all of these resources we've discussed on our podcast page. So be sure and visit that and check those out. So thank you again so much for being with us today. My pleasure. This was fun. Thanks, Curtis. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.